And so it takes the pressure off me a little bit, knowing that if that's all y'all got this evening, it would be enough. So we at UBC in the mornings are doing a sermon series on life together. What does it mean to be a Christian community in the modern age? And so we're starting off with that question, and we're going to be going through it for the next four weeks. And I jokingly informed them that this text from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, actually has 23 imperatives. This could be a 23-week sermon series, uh, but instead we're we're just going to do the four. And so Life Together is the title of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer book some of y'all may be familiar with. He was part of the Confessing Church in Germany during the time of the Nazis, and he ran these two underground seminaries. And so he was trying to write about what it means to be Christian community in the midst of immense evil. What are the things that define Christian community? And our text this evening defines Christian community for us. And actually, it, it kind of preaches backwards. And so the main point is verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sounds nice, right? But the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that in today's day and age? And so there are a roadmap of things that we can commit to as a Christian community. And so if we back all the way up to verse 9, the first thing is to let love be genuine. Or let love be unhypocritical might be a better translation of the Greek. We could also read this text as genuine love is to hate what is evil, to hold fast to what is good, to love one another with mutual affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. That's what love is. I'm reminded of the witness of Dr. Paul Farmer. Some of you may be familiar with his work in global health. He has two PhDs from Harvard, but rather than open a practice in America where he could have made bukus of money, he instead dedicated his career to partners in health. He wanted to figure out how to get healthcare to the developing world. He basically invented the field of global health. And all of these people told Dr. Farmer it couldn't be done. Those people weren't teachable. They were too distant, too remote, too far out. Other agencies had tried, and yet, time and time again, Dr. Farmer succeeded, particularly in places like Haiti. And so he was asked, what is the key to his success? And he said, I have a hermeneutic of generosity, meaning that whenever he walked into a community, he would assume that everybody he met with cared about that community that they were all doing their very best in that moment for their people. He wasn't coming in against. He was coming in alongside, coming in with the folks he was serving. Another way I think about this is I was listening to a podcast this week between two moms, and they were talking about how contentious school boards have become. And they were talking about how hard each of them saw their principals trying to communicate and over-communicate and let them know all of the things. And one of them said, I am choosing to interact with my school on the belief that they care. They care deeply about my child. They care about this career. They, They care about me. 
And when I enter into a meeting with the idea that they care, I'm less hostile, I'm less angry, less likely to criticize. Instead, I'm more likely to ask the questions, what can I do to help here? How can I support you? For those of us who participated in the parenting study we had earlier this year, Good Inside, it sounds like what Dr. Becky calls an MGI. What is the most generous interpretation that I can bring to this? What is the kindest thing I can say about my three-year-old's meltdown? What is the most gracious way to read the, the yelling match I got into with my preteen, right? And Dr. Becky says, in that moment, it allows us to step back and to take a deep breath and say, okay, there's a lot going on here. It's not just at me. There are other things happening in the world. I think genuine love looks like this. A lot of us have bought into the hallmarkification, if that's a word, of love. That love is this ooey, gooey, warm feeling. That love is butterflies. That love is heart palpitations. That love is the cartoonish eyes throbbing with the hearts in them. But we've been sold a lie because love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It's something we must decide to do. It's a choice. Anybody who's been married longer than a year can testify that love is a choice. The butterflies fade. They shift. It changes. The emotion is, is not always the same. And instead, you're left with a decision, a decision to love. If we waited until we felt like loving other people, I have to say we'd be waiting until Jesus came back right? Because there are some people we just don't feel like loving, okay? There are some people who are particularly challenging in our lives. At my former church, we call them EGRs, extra grace required, okay? We give one another a heads up when another pastor would say, got an EGR waiting for you, right? And we knew, just breathe deeply and call on God, right? But love is, is a choice, and social scientists have actually found that when we choose to love someone, our behavior actually and our feelings follow it. So our behavior and our decision actually changes the way we feel, which is a radical, powerful thing to think about. That if I choose to love someone, my, my feelings follow. We have that ab ability within us. I think the second imperative that I find important to highlight these days is in verse 12, rejoice and hope. We have an entire society right now that's built on fear and built on outrage. Every algorithm that exists in social media drives you to that point because it gives them your most precious thing, attention. And so outrage and fear drive engagement, they drive comments, they drive those spats that you see on social media. But fear itself is an impediment to us as we envision community, because fear operates in the reptilian section of your brain. Anybody who studied psychology or biology will tell you, you, you literally live at the lizard part of your brain when you're in fear. You're incapable of making good decisions. It's why you sometimes freeze or, or there's flight or, or fawn stages when you're really scared and you think, why did I react that way? Well, you couldn't think. That's why you reacted that way. 
But joy lives up at the top part of our brain. It lives in the cognitive part, the part where we can dream. Joy opens the door to prophetic imagination. It allows us to say, what if something was entirely different and new? I want to be a Christian community that's defined by joy. Ecclesia, y'all's literal name means church in the Greek. But it means more than just a church. It means to be called out, to be set apart. There's something distinct about ecclesia. And I would like to hope that what is distinct about it is joy. Y'all just celebrated 16 years as a community of faith when every news article has that the church in America is dying, and you've got the spiritual but not religious, and you know every church scandal in the background. 16 years. 16 years is worth rejoicing over. You know what's worth rejoicing over is the life impact that a trip to D.C. has on a child. What's worth rejoicing over are the ways in which that this community and UBC together pour into our kids, giving them a faith that's not just doctrine, but instead wonder, a faith that can connect concrete things like candles to the presence of God. That's worth rejoicing over. And so when somebody asks you about where you attend church or where you find community, I hope your first answer can be something about joy that you find in our midst. The last part of this section I think is the most challenging. It has to do with verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. We don't like talking about the wrath of God, right? makes us uncomfortable. Some of us may have come from backgrounds where that was all we ever heard about, fire and brimstone and fingers pointing at you. But the wrath of God does exist because God is a God of justice. God is angered by the climate crisis. God is angered by the continued brokenness and sin of racism. God is angered by things that are happening in our world. But there's a difference between my anger and God's anger, because God's anger is holy. It transforms. But when I take on the mantle of anger as my responsibility, it turns into revenge, which is something far more toxic. I think about the show Revenge that was on ABC for many years. You may have caught an episode or two, and a young woman her father is, is arrested for a crime he didn't commit and framed as a terrorist. And the entire show, season after season, is her trying to give all of these rich people their comeuppance, right? Trying to get revenge on them. And after a while, I begin to think, what a waste. She's a millionaire. She has a home in the Hamptons. I think I could let it go. I think I could let it go on a yacht. I think I could let it go with a private chef. I think I could figure out a way to move on. But that's the thing about revenge, is it, instead of us living our lives as we define them, 
We live our lives defined by the evil that others have done to us. I can say that another way. We should only be in charge of our reactions. Our only responsibility is our feelings, not what other people do. Because believe it or not, we can't control other people. I can't even control other people. And so we have to admit that. And so the question is then, how do we live our lives with integrity? How do we live in such a way that we are not defined by the behavior of others, we're defined by our own values instead? I'm reminded of the the real story of Anthony Ray Hinton. He has a book called The Sun Does Shine. You see, Anthony was mowing his front yard in Alabama when he was arrested for a crime he did not commit. The two things he had against him was that he was poor and he was black, and he was in Alabama, three things. And the prosecutor at the time said you could just tell he was evil by looking at him, and the case was super thin, and he sat on death row for 10 years. And then 10 years became 20, and 20 years became 30, long enough for the men that Anthony had befriended on the row to be executed. And he would hear it every time it happened, those men hauled down the hallway, people he had grown to respect and rely on. And when he was finally released in 2015, He was asked, what did he wish for that prosecutor? What did he wish for those who had convicted him and denied him justice for so long? And he said, I forgive them. And I forgive them not because they deserve it. I forgive them because it is what I can control. I learned in prison what freedom is. And that's nobody gets to make up my mind and how I choose to be in the world other than me. And so with my freedom, I'm going to move on. The sun still shines, he says. And so as a church, as a community of faith, we we have to decide how are we going to be people of integrity. No matter how others treat us, no matter what life hands us, How will we use our own agency to decide who we will be? And so our questions are, how will we choose love? And what will we rejoice in? And how will we live with integrity? But you may be asking, all of this sounds lovely. It sounds like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But I know plenty of good people who choose to live by imperatives like these? What makes them Christian? What makes it part of our faith rather than just being a good person? The book of Romans is an epistle, a letter of Paul. And the first 11 chapters are all about God's grace. You may have grown up hearing about the Roman road, or you may have heard that section of text from chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. And so Paul has been driving and driving and driving at God's grace this whole book. 
And then chapter 12, it starts with a therefore. Therefores are always important in scripture. And so Paul does a therefore. Let your life be a living sacrifice to God and worship to God. And so we do the right living. We do the golden rule thing, not because it makes us moral people, but because, in fact, it's the central part of our worship. Our worship is both supposed to be an an intellectual exercise, but also a practical reality. And I would say our practical reality, our orthopraxis, if you want to get fancy, is the more important piece. I'm less concerned with having all of the intellect and more concerned that our very actions outside of this building reflect the community of God, reflect the kingdom that is coming. And so in the week ahead, I hope that you will decide one person to love intentionally, one thing to rejoice in, and one thing to live with integrity, a value that you are going to commit to. Join me now as we go before God in prayer. God of grace, we give you thanks for this community. We rejoice in 16 years of togetherness, whether somebody is new or been apart the entire time. It is a gift to be formed together in faith. We pray that you would give us the courage to choose to live out love, that our actions might be reflections of you in the world. As we transition into a time of communion, God, we ask that you would remind us of your presence and the bread and the cup, that you would pour out the Holy Spirit on these gifts, that they might dare to transform us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.